Um, just to let you guys know, we obviously this is Palm Sunday. You saw the kids come in and parade in. It's one of my favorite, favorite uh, Sundays that we do. And uh, the kids just look so cute and my kids are in it too. So I just, I love it. But on top of that, I love Palm Sunday because it's one of those Sundays that um, it's kind of an anticipatory Sunday, which means it's preparing us for something else. And it's preparing us for this coming week, which is called the Holy Week. And uh, that means that this coming Friday, we have Good Friday service. And on Sunday, we have Easter, which means also that we have a lot of stuff going on. So I want to encourage you to look at the bulletin. As you came in, you had it. Uh, lots of colorful images and stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on. You saw in the video that we have so many things happening. So I want to encourage you to take a look at that. Um, we do have little flyers available uh, for Easter. If you want to hand them out to some of your friends, family, neighbors, whatever, those are available uh, at the info booth. And I encourage you to pick some of those up but for me uh, I just love this time of year like I said um, the only thing I don't like about this time of year is it's so beautiful and yet at the same time it's miserable and what I mean is this I have such bad allergies that uh, this morning when I showed up to church it was like you know sun sunrise and all the trees are blossoming and you're like this is incredible I feel like I'm in Narnia right now this is amazing and then all of a sudden you step out of the car and you start walking. Pretty soon your eyes are itching, you're sneezing, and you have runny nose. And you're like, I hate this season. It's the worst. But, but you understand that, like, that tension, do you not? If those of you who have allergies know what I'm talking about, those who don't, you better just praise God you don't have them. But it's one of those interesting seasons where at one moment you're looking out and you're like, this is incredible that the, the hills are still, they're green still. It's amazing. But at the same time, you're, you know, you're itching and coughing and sneezing and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, the reason I bring that up is because we, we have examples of, of tension in life and we have an example of a paradox. What I mean by paradox is something which seems self-contradictory or just totally absurd, but at the same time, it's still true. For instance, I love spring. And yet at certain times you'll hear me say, I hate spring because of my allergies, but at the same time, I love it. We're going to be talking about the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 19. And what we're going to see uh, in part is that the kingdom of God is a very paradoxical thing. It's something where um, it's not what you expect. It seems self-contradictory and things like that. It, it has a lot of tension, but at the same time, it's true. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and, and turn there and we'll read about the victory of God. You know, we are in this series, which is really a good series which is just preparing us for Easter and then following the week after Easter. And so I just encourage you um, this week to take some time to read through the narrative of the Gospels of Jesus' last week and just see some of the things he did and taught and all that kind of stuff. It's just a really good time. The series we're in is called Victory, the Gospel Foretold and Fulfilled. And uh, today what we're going to see is that the victory of God is the good news that the true king has come to inaugurate his kingdom. And that's about, East, that, excuse me, that's about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. The true king has come and he's inaugurated his kingdom. And that is good news for us. Let's read this in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, referring back to the things Larry preached on last week, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with, loud, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he had, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones will cry out. So, Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for what it means for us as Christians. This is the triumphal entry, the, the time in which you revealed yourself to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And above that, what you also demonstrated for us and showed us is the kind of kingdom that you reign over. It's unlike anything that we would have anticipated. It's different than what we would expect. It's countercultural. It's otherworldly. 
And in that way, it's, it's hard for us to grasp. And so that's why we ask you, God, to grant us the grace that we need to comprehend this story, the truths in it. And I pray that your word would enliven us and it would challenge us and it would encourage us. But above all these things, Lord, help us to meet with you as we gather in this place and teach us what it is you want us to know. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the victory of God is the good news that the true king has come into his kingdom. This is obviously the story when Jesus was mounted on the colt, the foal of a donkey, where he walked, uh, the, the donkey, walked into Jerusalem and everyone was praising Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our Lord David who has come. And there's just great rejoicing. There's all kinds of just I don't know, just excitement in Jesus' coming. And it, it reminds us in First uh, Kings when Solomon was anointed the next king to take over after King David. The same kind of thing happened. He was mounted on a donkey. He went into Jerusalem and everyone uh, praised him for becoming the next king. You know, most of the time when we think about the triumphal entry, we think about why Jesus came to Jerusalem. What, what was it that compelled Jesus to come to Jerusalem? Why in the world did he ride a donkey? Why didn't he come on a war horse? Or why didn't he just walk in? Why, why all the detail about cloaks and being laid in the road? And in the book of Mark chapter 11, when it talks about the triumphal entry and they laid palm branches down, why, why all this stuff? But there, that's a good question. But I think there's a question that precedes it, which I find even more interesting. It's not so much why did Jesus come to Jerusalem, the uh, uh, a question I think is a better question is, why did God become incarnate in the first place? Why in the world did God decide to become a man and dwell among us, as, first, as John says in, in the first chapter of his gospel? Why, why does that happen? And if we want to know why God became incarnate in a person named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, who was raised in Nazareth, and we want to know why he came to Jerusalem mounted on a colt, the answers are basically with God and with Jesus themselves. So we have to ask them, okay, Jesus, why did you go to Jerusalem? God, why did you become incarnate in the person of Jesus? Those are good questions. And in fact, I think it's important questions for us to, to kind of get a grasp of the triumphal entry itself or understanding what in the world's going on. So the question is this, why in the world did God become incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth? Why did it take place in the first place? That's a really good question, by the way. I'm glad you asked. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. This is about Jesus answering our question of why did God become incarnate. And we pick it up where uh, Jesus is in a synagogue and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus takes Isaiah 61, he unravels it, he stands up and he begins to read it, that he has come anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach good news to the poor, to preach liberation for the captive, to make sure that people understand why he came is to provide for people um, who are poor and oppressed and marginalized, to provide them with good news. I have something to share with you, Jesus says. And he says, today, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Or in other words, he stands up in a synagogue and reads about this promised coming one who would do these amazing things. He rolls it back up and says, I just want to let you all know, everything Isaiah just promised in Isaiah 61, I'm going to fulfill it. Mike drops, sit, and then he sits down. And people are just looking like, what? This is crazy. That's one reason why Jesus came. Another one is Luke chapter 4, verse 43 and 44, which is in the same chapter a little bit later on. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For or because I was sent for this purpose. So this is Jesus giving, giving us an answer to our question. Why in the world did God become incarnate? 
One of the answers is here. Because he was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why he came. And I've had it over the years where people are like, why do we have preaching in the church? I just hate preaching. It's like, well, you would have hated Jesus because that's why he came. And that obviously diffuses the situation. But that's one of the reasons why he came is to actually preach, to proclaim, to announce that there is good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And to put it in positive language, Jesus says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. So if you take, there's a lot more than that, but that's all, all that we have time for. If you take those three uh, components and you put them together, here's, here's what you would get for an answer for why God became incarnate in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to proclaim liberty and freedom to those who are oppressed, marginalized, and poor by telling them of the great joy of the kingdom of God, of which they are welcomed into if they will repent of their sins and believe in the gospel and as a consequence live as citizens of the kingdom of God. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That God has come, he has become a man to preach good news to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. And that he is proclaiming the good news, this joyful, glad news of the kingdom of God, which anyone is welcome to enter into so long as they repent of their sins, believe in the gospel, and they consequentially live as citizens of that kingdom. That's Christianity in a nutshell. And that's why Jesus came. It's all about the good news of the kingdom of God. But another question we might ask is, well, how did, how did Jesus... Uh, purchase or procure or how did he establish this kind of freedom for the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor what did he do in order to offer this kind of freedom to them another good question I'm glad you asked that very perceptive Luke 18 where Jesus took, takes the 12 and he says to them see we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man including what he just read about uh, Isaiah 61 Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will deliver over to the Gentiles and will, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. In other words, Jesus is going to Jerusalem intentionally to lay down his life through crucifixion, through being beaten and spit upon and flogged and eventually resurrected from the dead. Because in that event and in those events, Jesus is securing and purchasing sinners in order that they may be free. And I want to make sure you understand that because in, in Acts chapter 20, it, it talks about how Jesus has purchased the church by his own blood. So Jesus didn't purchase freedom. He purchased people and then also gave them freedom. And I think that's really important to understand the bloody cross and the empty tomb is the means by which Jesus purchased sinners in order for them to be set free. That's what Galatians 5.1 says. Brothers, you have been given freedom. The good news is for those who are oppressed, for those who are poor, for those who are marginalized. It's good news for those who feel like they got no aspirations, no hope. They have no prospects. They have no gifts. They're ignored. They're hated. It's good news for them, Jesus says. I came for the poor. I came for the marginalized. I came for the oppressed. Preaching good news for you. It reminds us, too, that from the very beginning, Jesus' life was, was built on this concept of joy and the kingdom of God. Remember before Jesus was even born, an angel Gabriel came to Mary and began to tell Mary about what was about to happen to her. You remember that in Luke chapter 1? And behold, this is the angel speaking to Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, he, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give, give to him the throne of his father David. Notice that's king language. He will have a throne. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And after that, the angels, a whole multitude of angels, present themselves before the shepherds. Remember that in Luke chapter 2. And an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled, filled with great fear. I have to stop there and ask the question, who are shepherds? Do you remember the prospects of shepherds at the time of Jesus? They were homeless. They were poor. They were social outcasts. They were completely ostracized. They, 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 they weren't welcomed into high society and normal life. They stunk. They were just weird people. And this is the particular people that the angels decided to come and reveal themselves to. The poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the ostracized. They come and look at what the angel says to them in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you. Don't miss that. I bring you, poor person, shepherd, ostracized, oppressed, marginalized. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I love that last phrase because it reminds us of the scope of the kingdom of God and, and the effect of the gospel where God's intention is that all people, people from all walks of life, you shepherds, you, you low income, just low statured people, this kingdom's yours. And it reminds us too that also the kingdom of God is for people who are in high standings, kings and queens and stuff, the kingdom is yours. And only that, but we see this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's all the people, and as we will see, it's actually incorporating both Jews and Gentiles. The kingdom of God is comprised of people from a low status to a high status, of every, every walk of life, every skin color, every dialect, every, like, both men and women, just all kinds of, of, of different people is comprising this kingdom of God. It's very, it's very diverse. And this kingdom is something that people have been waiting for for a really, really long time. In fact, when Jesus said that he's coming and preaching the kingdom of God, many of the people were like, oh, yeah, we've been waiting for this. So what I want to do is show you a kind of a snapshot in the New Testament of a, uh, a group of different people who were anticipating the kingdom of God. And I'm going to show you what kind of kingdom of God, kingdom of God they were actually anticipating. There, it was a very particular and a very specific thing that they were eagerly waiting for. So we'll first start with Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to 32. Simeon was a righteous and devout man in verse 25. And it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he was waiting for the time in which God would decide to give Israel their kingdom back. And that was what he was eagerly waiting and anticipating. He could not wait for that moment. The Holy Spirit told him, Simeon, you're not going to die until you lay your very own eyes on God's salvation. You're going to see it. And so he was thinking, okay, God's salvation is the kingdom of God where the Roman occupation is going to be uh, thrown away and the nation of Israel is going to have their land back, going to have their temple back, and is going to have their government back, their monarchy and their king. It's going to be fantastic. And that's what he's waiting for. And so Mary and Joseph come holding baby Jesus into the temple to do what is the custom according to the law. And in verse 29, they laid baby Jesus into Simeon's arms. And here's what he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So here's Simeon waiting for this military overthrow of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and Israel. And he's told by the Holy Spirit that you're going to see God's salvation. You're going to see how God's going to deliver you. And next thing you know, he's holding this human body with armpits and nostrils and nipples. And he, oh, oh this is God's salvation. It's not quite what I was expecting. Huh. You understand that? A people group who have been oppressed for literally hundreds of years is promised by God that you're going to have a kingdom. And they're eagerly anticipating this military overthrow of Rome. And it's going to be just epic. And yet God says, I'm doing it. Here it is. A baby? Like for real? That's all you got? Huh. But remember, the kingdom of God is reserved for those who are childlike. 
Remember what Jesus said? Childlike means that you are dependent, that you are needy. And the kingdom of God is exactly reserved for those kinds of people who are dependent and needy. And baby Jesus epitomizes that. He was dependent and needy upon Joseph and Mary. Next person is Anna, Luke chapter 2, verse 38. She was a devout woman. She was a prophetess. And she was a worshiper of God. She was in the temple praying and worshiping. And at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak about Jesus because she beheld Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus. And she began to speak about Jesus. Look at this to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She was speaking to those who were eagerly anticipating the restoration of the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem where a Davidic king would once again reign on a throne. And the next one is when Jesus was resurrected. He was walking with two disciples on the Nemaeus Road and they were talking about what they were thinking and feeling because they were anticipating that this person, Jesus, who was a miracle worker, that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one. And yet in Jerusalem, he was crucified and he was dead and buried and put into a tomb. And so they're walking kind of desperate and lonely and dejected and hopeless. And so Jesus encounters them and asks them, what are you guys talking about? They're like, ah. So they relay to him everything. Verse 21, they say, we had hoped that Jesus, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to bring in the kingdom of God. We thought it was going to be this great military overthrow and he died. So I don't know what to do now. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus presents himself alive through many proofs to his disciples over the course of 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And so the disciples naturally asked the question, Lord, in verse 6, will you at this time, instantaneously, militarily, Shock and awe. Will you restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Is this going to happen now? We've been waiting for this. We thought it was when you were going to die and then, and then you died and then you were dead. But, but then now you're back alive again. So is it now? Like can we anticipate you on a horse with a sword and you're just going to town and overthrowing Rome? Is it, is it now? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, I'm not telling you when the fullness of the kingdom of God is coming. But I am saying this, that you already have power. That the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses ever increasingly. And the kingdom of God's going to spread. So the people were eagerly awaiting the Messiah's come where he would overthrow Roman occupation, restore uh, the kingdom of Israel and the promised land, where he would be uh, the king and ruler. And people were just so eager and expecting this kind of stuff. They were like, yeah, I can't wait for the kingdom. I can't wait. So what is meant by the kingdom of God? What is meant by the kingdom of God? Oftentimes when we talk about this, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. In the Bible, there's at least two versions of the kingdom of God. And I think they, they summarize real well um, what the concept is in scripture. You see, the first one is about God being totally and utterly sovereign over all things. The reality is this, there's not a molecule in the universe over which God is not sovereign. There is nothing in which God does not point to in all of the created universe and says, that's mine. He's sovereign king over all. We see that in Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Not over some, over all. So that's one concept of the kingdom. Another concept comes from Graham Goldsworthy, who's a, a theologian in Australia. He defines God's, God's kingdom in, in three, three parts. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. So God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, throughout scripture, we see how the kingdom of God is ever expanding and increasing, and we're beginning to understand it more and more fully through that concept. Think about it like this, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, under God's promise. Don't eat that fruit. If you don't, you'll live. If you do, you're in big trouble. And then we're introduced to Abraham. Abraham in the land of Canaan, and he was living under the rule of God's promise of the promised land. 
and uh, evidenced by circumcision. Then we're introduced to Moses. Moses in Egypt and also in the desert under the rule of God's covenant in the Old Testament. And then we're introduced to King David. King David ruling in Jerusalem in a monarchy under the covenant. And then we're introduced to uh, the people of Israel who are sent into exile. So you have the exilic exilic, uh, Jews and they're in Babylon. And they're ruled underneath the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 and 33 and Ezekiel 36 and 37. And then in the New Testament, you have God's people who are the Christians in God's place, which is in Christ and seated at the, in the heavenly uh, places with Christ himself and under God's rule, which is called the new covenant. And so you see all throughout the scriptures that the concept of the kingdom of God is present. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. So when we think about the kingdom in that aspect, we have to realize what Jesus is doing in the triumphal entry is he announcing publicly that the kingdom of God is here. It's here. God's people, God's rule under, or God's people in God's place under God's rule, it's here. And so we pick it up in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. And so his disciples do exactly as he says. They find the colt, they put him on it, and he goes walking into Jerusalem. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. When you see this whole episode, you have to ask yourself the question, at least I do, why in the world did Jesus take the time to stop and have his disciples go forward and untie a colt so that he can ride on it and go into Jerusalem? Like, what's that all about? Can't he just walk? The feet hurt? Got blisters? Like, what's wrong with him? Um, John can't give him a piggyback ride? Like, why, is, why does he have to ride on a colt? And the reality is Jesus knew that he must die and rise again. He absolutely knew that. In fact, he predicted it three times in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. It says this, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 44, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And it's implied that he's going to be crucified and resurrected. Jesus knew that he had to do this, and he also knew that it had, to be, it had to take place in Jerusalem. Later on in that chapter, in Luke chapter 9, this is what Luke writes about Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, which is crucified and resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, which means he set his face. I'm going this way. He's resolute. He's determined. I'm, I'm doing this. And he sent messengers ahead of him. He went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. In other words, the the Samaritan people worshiped God in a particular way, in a particular location. Jesus, being a Jew, worshiped God in Jerusalem. He was bound and determined to go to Jerusalem. His face was set that direction. This is where I'm going. And when the people found out that's where he's going, they're like, no, we we don't want anything to do with you. Jesus was, in effect, saying, I'm going to Jerusalem And the reason my face is set towards it is because I plan on worshiping and glorifying God there. And what's going to happen there? He knowingly is going to die and rise again. Voluntarily, no one coerces him. No one forces him into it. He voluntarily lays down his life in Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. And then the third time he says is in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 where he says, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And then the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19 is all about him journeying to Jerusalem, intentionally set on being crucified and resurrected because he knew that that was what needed to happen in order to purchase sinners for freedom. But this whole cult stuff, he also knew Zechariah 9.9, which reads this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
See, Jesus knew for a fact that Zechariah 9.9 was a prophecy concerning what's called the Messiah King. The one who was the promised one of God who would rule and reign on the seat of David as the King of Kings and the Lord. He knew that. And he knew that the people anticipated that the coming Messiah would ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. And so when he saw the little colt tied up, he goes, you two, go over there, untie it. I got to ride on that thing in order to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Or in other words, to make sure that everyone understands I am the Messiah King. I am the promised one. I am the one who rules and reigns. I am the one who is going to give deliverance and salvation. I am the one preaching good news to the poor. I am the one who is promising liberation for the oppressed and marginalized. I am that man. And what's really cool about that is what Phil Graham Riken says. He goes, this event was not a political statement. As most of them thought, it was a spiritual statement. Jesus had not come to take control of the government. He had not come to overthrow the Romans through military might. No. Jesus was a new kind of king. He had come in meekness and gentleness to to be the Messiah king of peace. If people accepted him, he would receive their praise. But if they rejected him, he would do nothing to defend himself, even to the very point of death. You see, kings represent their kingdoms. All throughout the Old Testament, when you see a a king go bad, sending his brains out and whatnot, the people are affected. Likewise, when the people send their brains out and are acting a fool, the king is affected. Because the king and his kingdom... They have this deep relationship with one another. So much so that if you want to know something about the king, you merely have to look at this kingdom. And if you want to know something about his kingdom, you merely have to look at the king. Because one reflects the other. Kind of like how the sky is reflected in the water. You get that. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem mounted on a colt, he is proclaimed as the king. Which also reminds us, when you see Jesus mounted on that colt, coming as the king of kings, you also are learning something about his kingdom. It says in Zechariah 9 that he came in righteousness, humility, gentleness. So what we know about Jesus' kingdom is is that the characteristic of Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, is one of gentleness, one of humility, and one of righteousness. Because that's what the king is. And the king represents his kingdom. So they begin to cry out in Mark 11, verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You see why they put the two there. Blessed is the king who comes, but also blessed is the kingdom because they're one and the same. When the king comes, his kingdom comes. If the kingdom comes, that's because the king is there. The palm branches are cut down and laid before him. The cloaks are put down on the, on the ground. It's kind of the proverbial red carpet of royalty. And here he comes, riding into Jerusalem, humble, gentle, righteous. In fact, theologian Alan Thompson says this, in Luke's writings, the kingdom of God is conceived as coming in the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And to proclaim these facts in their proper setting, that is in light of the Old Testament promises, That is what it means to preach the gospel in the kingdom of God. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, preaching the good news is to proclaim the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus as the coming kingdom of God according to the scriptures of the Old Testament. But you have to realize the kingdom is a paradox. You see, the people were anticipating this victorious king who would be, they were thinking he's going to overthrow Roman occupation. Now, in in order to overthrow uh, the Roman army, you might need a big army. Think about that. If somebody wants to invade the United States, they got to come with a big military to do so. And that's the anticipation. And yet when Jesus comes, he's riding humble, gentle, though he is righteous, on a colt. I'm the king and I have a kingdom. And they're kind of going, what? How in the world are you going to overthrow the Roman military? You're just going to go around and kick people with your colt or something? Like, what's going to happen? How is this possible? It's a paradox, which means it, it seems one way, but in reality, it's another. You see, when most people think about kings and kings, kingdoms, you think of opulence and you think of power and you think of wealth and you think of prestige and you think of beauty. 
And yet when you see King Jesus and his kingdom coming, you don't see any of that. You see humility, gentleness. It's a paradox. Let me give you some examples of the paradox. And I think this is important because the kingdom of God is very difficult to understand. I love John chapter 12, verse 16, where he comes in on the triumphal entry. And then John writes that his disciples didn't understand what was going on. And then when he told about his death and resurrection for the third time, it says that they didn't understand what was going on. Because the kingdom of God is so paradoxical, it's so countercultural and so otherworldly that it makes you scratch your head and go, wait, what? Well, huh? And if you look at some of the examples, I'll give you some examples. These are good ones. He said to them, to all the people who are listening, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's just stop for a second. Think about what the predominant teaching of our world is today. What you need to do is pick yourself up, worry about yourself, put yourself first. And when you do that, then you'll really have success. And yet Jesus says, nope, what you need to do is deny yourself. Uh-oh. That, wait, what? And, and then it goes on. For whoever, and here's the reason why, if, if, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Wait, what? So are you telling me if I want to live forever, I got to die? Yep. And if I don't die, like now I'm going to die then? Yep. And so if I try to preserve my life now in this world, I'm going to die ultimately? Yep. Uh, what? That's, that's just, wait, what, what? Not only that, but, but then you have something like Luke 22 where the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them call themselves benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Think about that for a second. You want to be great? You serve people. That, that, that's totally opposite of what we have in our culture today. In fact, the ones who are the victorious ones, the successful ones, are the ones who have servants, not the ones who are servants. That's why it's totally countercultural. It's totally otherworldly. It's totally upside down. And you're thinking, what in the world? Because we think success is equal to wealth, power, and people doing stuff for us. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 the kingdom of God is not about people doing stuff for you. The kingdom of God is about you doing stuff for others. It's quite different. And not only that, but you have to think about this. When Jesus came in Luke 4 and he says that he came to preach good news to the poor, remember also the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. And you remember when he keeps talking about, I'm preaching, I'm preaching good news. I'm preaching good news. I'm preaching freedom. I'm preaching liberty. liberty. Who's he preaching that to? The oppressed, the marginalized, and the poor. Why? Because it's precisely the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed who will be inheriting the kingdom of God because they have most need and dependency. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is not about pride and wealth and power. It's about being poor and powerless and utterly dependent upon God. Jesus came for the poor and powerless. Jesus came for the needy. Jesus came for those who are not self-dependent or independent. Jesus came for those who needed him most. Remember, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. I came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. And no wonder why, it just makes sense. In Matthew 7, if you remember this, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember when he said that? That's scary words, especially when the people who were there talking to Jesus said, what are you talking about? We perform miracles. We casted out demons. And he goes, and? Which tells me if you think about this, the most successful Christians, the most powerful Christians are the ones who are doing all these miraculous things. And Jesus said, eh. Because those who inherit the kingdom of God, he says, are those who do my will. And so we naturally ask the question, what is it to do God's will? I'm glad you asked, by the way. Matthew 25. Remember when Jesus tells that great story between and where he separates the, the sheep from the goats and he puts the sheep to his right and the goats to his left? 
And remember, he talks about the kingdom of God. This is the judgment that happens. These people enter the joy of your master. These people are going to everlasting destruction. And what's the distinction? Why do some go to his right and some go to his left? He says in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a sojourner or immigrant and you welcomed me in. And the people responded, what are you talking about? We never saw you like that. And Jesus says to them, yes, but whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. You see, that's what it means to do God's will, is to actually see the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor, and to see the hungry and the naked and the thirsty and the immigrant with no home, and to look at them and say, you who are hungry, I'm going to feed you. You who are thirsty, I'm going to give you something to drink. You who have no clothes, here are some clothes. Those who have no home, you are welcomed into my home. Jesus says, the people who do that are doing the king's business. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. And remember what Larry preached on last week. He said look, there was a parable in, in Luke chapter 19 where a king gave, gave those minas, remember, to his servants. And then he left to inherit a kingdom. And he told the people in the ESV, it says, engage in business. When the NIV, it says, occupy yourself with the king's business. You ever want to ask the question, well, what is that? What kind of business should I be engaged in in the king's business? And here's the answer. Matthew 25. If Jesus is preaching good news to the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, what do you think we're supposed to do? We're supposed to preach the good news to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. But not just preach. We should see the hungry and feed them. And we should see the clothed, those who are naked, and serve them because Jesus says, this is an example of my kingdom. I have come for such people as these. No wonder why Jesus says that it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. That's the question I have with the prosperity gospel. Rich, rich, it's hard. Jesus reserves the kingdom for the humble. And he says, go do likewise. Remember that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? I gave you an example. Serve. Go do likewise. This is what I came for. Do what I'm doing. And the people were just, man, they were, they were like, wait a minute. We thought it was going to be this governmental overthrow of power and stuff. And Jesus says, no, it's, the kingdom of God is powerful. But the power is not in oppression. The power, the power comes in service, giving your life up for your neighbor. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. I thought about how to call in sick today. I didn't really, but... Because we're, we're so conditioned in our culture today to equivocate success with power and wealth and influence. And yet Jesus says, no, the most faithful Christian is the one who utilizes those things in stewardship for the poor. Wow. Luke 17 being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was going to come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can observe. You think the kingdom is coming through military might and swords and war horses and cannons? It's not coming like that. And he says, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's like Jesus is playing kingdom peekaboo. I, this is silly, but it'll, it'll paint a picture for you. It's like where people are like, where's the kingdom? And he goes, here I am. Where's the kingdom? Here I am. Do you understand that? So where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. And if we embody the person of Christ through loving service of our neighbors and those who are poor, marginalized, and oppressed, is that not an opportunity for us to become Jesus for these people? And the kingdom of God becomes present. I love what Matthew 13 says, Jesus teaching on the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You know what Jesus is teaching here? That the kingdom is small and seemingly insignificant, but don't be fooled by its relatively inconsequential size. 
The kingdom of God is going to explode through the earth as small as it might be and become a great tree in which people will find their rest. I love what the book of Proverbs says where it says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. In other words, we have this idea, the grandiose idea that to serve our neighbors and, and to actually serve and, and uh, promote the kingdom of God, is, it's got to be this extravagant stuff. We got to travel the world and go overseas and all this kind of stuff. And then you got to make sure that you tweet about it. Make sure that you make videos and t-shirts and make sure everyone knows what you're up to. Make sure everyone understands how humble you are and how willing you are to serve. Make sure you make, like I said, video, music videos, whatever. Make sure you do that so that way everyone knows. And yet Jesus says, when you are giving to the needy and poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. And I ask myself the question, how does this embody the kingdom? So, so here's, here's to take a step back and you, we realize there are the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed living among, among us all the time. And I tell you, some of the most poor people in our community are like, you know, widows, orphans, single moms. Do you also know that sometimes young families, like newly married families that just welcomed in a baby? If, if you've been there before, you know how broke you were. You're like, man, how, how far, how many days can I make this tuna helper stretch? Is it not a great opportunity for us as a church to look at our young families who have just had a recent baby and to come to their house and deliver them a meal or a week's worth of meals? Is that not the kingdom of God at work? And I, I see that and I go, guys, you don't need to get in your car and then do a selfie video about how great you are because you just dropped off lasagna to the kids who just had a baby. You don't need that. In fact, I think Jesus would not get any glory in that. You would. And so I'm beginning to think, I like the old hymn. I don't know if you, I don't know, if you know this, but, but it says, little is much when God is in it. And I'm thinking of these little acts of service that nobody else sees, but our Father in heaven sees. And I'm, I'm banking on this promise. That little faithful act, I'm doing much with that. Mustard seed. God, make this meal a tree in the lives of these people. I'm bringing, I'm bringing seeds, it's just casserole. Make this a tree. Do this in them. That's the kingdom of God. It's, it's so unlike what we would anticipate. It's a paradox. Uh, where am I at? <laughs> Let's get three responses real quickly. As Jesus comes in, already on the way down the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I love that. You see, we're going to be introduced to two responses. One is from the disciples who gave glory to God. Blessed is the king. And the other one is the Pharisees who said this in verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. You see, whenever the kingdom of God is preached, there's always a response. As Charles Spurgeon said, and I said a couple weeks ago, the same sun that hardens clay, or excuse me, yeah, hardens clay, also melts wax. As 2 Corinthians talks about, Paul says, we are, as Christians, the aroma of Christ. And those who are Christians, we smell good. But to those who don't like Christ and don't want God in their lives at all, we stink of stench of death. It's the same aroma. It's just responded to differently. And we see these, these responses. When Jesus is on that cult, some people are saying, praise God, salvation is here. And other people are saying, shut up. Don't you speak like that. Because the Pharisees had a different idea of what the kingdom of God was supposed to be like. And yet it was the angels, remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, who were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What these disciples are doing are doing the same thing the angels were doing when Jesus was born. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Salvation is here. The Pharisees call for a rebuke. And our response to the kingdom of God is the symptom or, or the example of what condition our heart is in. 
Remember the, the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee said, man, God, you're awesome because you made me so much better than this guy. And the tax collector said none of that. And he simply beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who went away justified. And that parable is told to remind us that the self-righteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the needy. And by the way, tax collectors are the oppressed, socially marginalized, and outcasts. Jesus wants to get it in our heads that the way we respond to the kingdom reveals a lot about our hearts. You see, if we're driving down the street and we see a celebrity, you might slow down, pull out your phone, and try to take a quick little picture. Because they're wealthy, beautiful, powerful. You drive down Lone Tree, you see someone homeless, you do all that you can to pretend they're not there. Condition of our heart. It reveals something there. I love Revelation 5 because it reminds us that the kingdom of God is not what we expect. You remember there in the throne room of God and, and there was this scroll that, that no one was worthy to open and, and no one could, could possibly understand what was written in it. It says in verse 3, no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And the apostle John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So I love this because it's like in heaven, this is a lion of Judah, the conqueror, who is the most worthy being in all the universe. And the people are just like, oh, the lion. And then in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw. And here's what's amazing about this text. You see, he was told about a conquering lion. And when he turns his gaze upon and he looks between the thrones, he sees something. And what do you expect him to see? A lion. And that's not what he sees. Look at this. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see, the kingdom of God is not what we expect. You expect a roaring lion, and yet you get a, a slaughtered lamb. So which is Jesus, a lamb or a lion? Yes. That's the kingdom of God. It's paradoxical. You lose everything for the sake of Christ now, you get everything then. So you are rich if you're poor. The last response is this. They said, tell your disciples to shut up. And Jesus says, I won't do that. I tell you, if, I, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is not just being, you know, like just talking about how rocks can talk. He's actually trying to communicate a theological truth. If no human being praises me, the creation itself will. I will get my glory. I will get my praise. And the other thing that it reminds us is the natural world itself, which I preached on a couple weeks ago, and I got a few emails about me being some kind of liberal hippie, but <laughs> the natural world itself is actually an object of God's redemption. And, and, and there's some, some human tendencies that you see in Scripture about the, the created world. Look at this in, in Psalm 96. This is what the psalmist writes. Let the heavens be glad. Heavens, sky and stars and Jupiter be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. You see, Jesus was coming as the king in his kingdom. And he said, if all of you guys just shut your mouth and become mute, the stones and the trees and the water and the stars and the sky and the birds, they're going to start crying out anyway. I'm getting my praise. Why is that? Because of what Romans 8 says, that the creation in verse 19 waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why does it wait with eager longing? Because itself has been... The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that the whole creation, it has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In other words, Paul is saying, look, creation itself was plunged into 
uh, despair and chaos because of sin, but creation itself, the natural world, is going to be redeemed. And it's waiting with eager anticipation for the moment when Jesus returns so that it will experience the same liberation and freedom that human beings get to experience. And by the way, what kind of world are we going to live on with our glorified and resurrected bodies? It's a new heavens and new earth. And I love that thought, and I'm going to read just a few verses for you. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I read this, oh, it seems like, every time I preach. But we have to remember verse 4 that in this new creation, God is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new again. And he says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives us light. Its lamp is the Lamb. And then in verse 20, uh, chapter 22, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There's water in heaven, in the new creation. I'm going to swim. <laughs> Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Do you, do you understand the new, new heavens and new earth is, is kind of this urban setting as well where there's streets and rivers. And, and I love it. It says that there is on either side of the river the tree of life with this 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. Remember the gospel of the kingdom of God is comprised of people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. By the way, when you go to a big, giant city, what is the scariest time to go walk around that city? Nighttime. Guess what? There's no nighttime, which means I get to walk around in this urban complex with streets and stuff with no fear of ever being mugged or raped or anything like that. No fear of violence, no fear of any kind of injustice. Remember, there's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death in this gigantic city free of crime. And then here's what Jesus says, verse 12, behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have to understand that parable I told about how the king leaves for a distant country to come back, you know, the parable of the 10 minus, that's true. I came in, in my incarnation, in life and death and resurrection. I have ascended to the heavens and I want you to get busy with the king's business of embodying the kingdom of God by serving the poor and marginal and ostracized because you need to know I'm coming back again. And when I come back, I'm bringing my recompense and my reward and I'm going to repay everyone for what they've done. And when I come back, it's a wrap. I love that thought because it's, it makes me just long. Come on. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I love verse 17, the spirit and the bride, which is the church. We are the bride of Christ and dwelled by the spirit. We say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Do you hear that? If you're poor and needy, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Let the one who has no money come. And by grace, you will receive your heart's desire. He who testifies to these things, Jesus himself says this, surely I am coming soon. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I both know that this world is broke down. There's not a day that goes by that you and I don't think, man, something's wrong with this world. And yet at the same time, you and I operate out of this weird thing that you can only uh, describe in, in kind of uh, a hard, difficult words. But, but you have this knowledge and this, this kind of deep impression that there's a better world out there. Let me ask you the question, where do you get that concept from? It's because God has not left you without some sort of testimony of what not only was in Eden, but also will be in the new Eden. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters, where the life we have always anticipated will become reality. And that affects how we live. And so we close with these four words as the church amen or let it be so last three words come lord jesus
do what you have promised, God. So God, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit if we have repented and believed the gospel. And God, you are calling us as your followers to embody the kingdom of God, to no longer ignore the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, but instead to preach the good news to them that though they are poor, yet they will be rich. God, you have promised to us a restored and redeemed natural world in the new heavens and new earth. You've promised to us resurrected bodies. And so we, though we may face cancer, though we may face all kinds of injustice, though we may face sexism and racism, though we may face all kinds of sources of oppression, there's coming a day, Lord, where all of that will come untrue. You're going to reverse the curse. There will be no more pain, no more, no more sin. There will be nothing corrupt, no more death, no more weeping. We will behold you as you are. And as Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand, who is Jesus Christ, are pleasures forevermore. God, fill us with this kind of joy, I pray. Grant us these things and help us as a church become bold ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And we do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.